Man, you're getting killed out there. Tell me about it. I feel like Rocky after 15 rounds with Apollo Creed. Speaking of Rocky, did you know that Sylvester Stallone wrote the first draft of the movie in only three days? Did you know that Sylvester Stallone permanently flattened out his knuckles from punching the side of beef? What about Burgess Meredith? He had lived his line in the audition, which landed him the role of Mickey. Or that a destitute Sylvester Stallone turned down $350,000 because the studio didn't want him starring in it? Well, you can find this out and much, much more by listening to Rocky Minute, the fan podcast that covers the Rocky movies one minute at a time. You can find us on DuelingGenre.com. Now get back out there and knock this bum out. Dueling Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week I am once again joined by returning guest Henry Dorowski, and we will be discussing Kanji Watanabe from the film Ikiru. Ikiru. I'm not sure on the pronunciation. Ikiru. Henry, do you have a, a, a pass on that? Ikiru. Ikiru. Okay, there we go. It's yep, I-K-I-R-U. Ikiru. Uh, listeners, if you're not familiar, Ikiru is a 1952 film directed by Akira Kurosawa and written by Shinobu Hashimoto and Hideo Aguni, and it stars Takashi Shimura as Kanji Watanabe, a man who is dying from cancer and searches for meaning as he knows his end is coming. And the film has a present-day narrative, and it's also interspersed with flashbacks. Um, so if you are interested in one of the best film directors of all time telling a story full of pathos, Akiru is a film for you. Yes. Henry, how did you first come to Akiru? All right. So uh, after, I guess, spending a decent portion of one summer in Utah and sort of becoming uh, immersed in the podcast and listening to it, I uh, this is not just like praise for the sake of praise. This is genuinely the truth. Uh I was choosing my electives for the next year in school and I saw this class called literary analysis, you know, and I said, uh, I would like to uh, take that and kind of think deeper about the stories and, you know, get more out of my entertainment consumption, uh, sort of inspired by listening to you and Todd. And, uh, that I didn't know that class was actually split in half. So the first half of the year we did literary analysis and the second half we did worldviews and film and for Kurosawa in Japan, my teacher, Mr. G, uh, chose to show us this film instead of Seven Samurai, which would have been the popular choice. And the first time, it was like something really foreign to me. But I remember being really emotionally moved by the story, and it had a profound effect on me. And then that summer after that year, I was like, uh, I think that was the best best thing I consumed in that class was Ikiru. And so since then, I purchased the Criterion and watched it around in like the last three years, 10, 10 or so times. Cause uh, it's immediately list like jumped to my list of favorite movies. It, you know, it just, one of those works, you know, really connects with me. It really gets to my soul. So you that, mentioned just kind of an offhand way that you bought the criterion collection, a version of the film for any listeners who don't know that DVD uh, line. Could you explain what criterion is? All right. So basically criterion is a company that their mission statement, uh, is to 
uh, a can you know I have actually the thing right here on the box is the Criterion Collection, a continuing series of important classic and contemporary films. So they basically restore and make available to American audiences foreign, old, and foreign, old, and new films, uh, so that you know they're accessible because these things are, you know, before this age and the 21st century, hard to come by and hard to get your hands on. But so they're just higher quality and better way of getting access to things that you might not have access to. Yes. Having a film released as a criterion film is kind of a stamp of quality mm-hmm. approval from, right. from, from yeah. uh, you know, film buffs. Um, mm-hmm. And it isn't just foreign films. They do also do American films get criterion releases, yeah. but it is just supposed to be kind of the, a, a curated collection of the best of the best. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never seen Akiru before you suggested it for a topic for this podcast. Um, and uh, I had heard of it, but I didn't really know it. It was just kind of like in passing in talking about Kurosawa. Um, I'd heard it mentioned, but I didn't know very much about it at all. So I watched it yesterday and it is amazing. Seal of approval from me. If that means so, anything so to good. anyone. <laughs> um there is a deliberateness to every choice in this film that is just kind of riveting and captivating to watch. It's not like by today's standard, it is a slow film Um, shots linger. The pace of the editing is a lot slower than we're used to with modern filmmaking, but it was just so carefully done that I was Mm -hmm. immersed and um, all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, excellent acting, excellent directing, uh, and the uh, the main actor uh, it's uh, Takashi Shimura, Takashi Shimura, Kanji Watanabe. There's something that's mm-hmm. just um, like like his face on film it was just fascinating to watch. <laughs> there's there's a lot that happens in the way that he holds his body and uh, the way he delivers lines um, that is just captivating. Absolutely. So thank you for the recommendation, Henry. I definitely appreciate that. All right, some trivia about this. And Henry, feel free to jump jump in with any of your own trivia that you have. But Ikiru means to live. And originally the film was going to be titled The Life of Kanji Watanabe. But Kurosawa, the director, he renamed it. And one of the screenwriters, Hashimoto, thought that that was a really pretentious name. <laughs> but the other screenwriter, <laughs> he liked it. <laughs> and uh, if... Yeah, the, the name to live, I understand the critique that it's a bit pretentious, uh, but with the distancing of a foreign language where it's just called Ikiru to us, I don't, you know, it doesn't bother me at all. Mm. Uh, which is interesting because his other film titles tend to get translated, but this one is always just Ikiru um, when I find mm-hmm. references to it or when I had conversations and we were talking about the work of Kurosawa. It was always just Ikiru, whereas Seven Samurai and uh, what's the fortress? Um, uh, hidden fortress hidden fortress those ones Bad get translated well. yeah so i don't know maybe it is the pretentiousness of to live that um left would be uh people left this one is just ikiru mm-hmm. and i also think uh compared to some of the other japanese words for american audiences i think ikiru is relatively uh something easier to pronounce than some of his uh longer titles i think right we Though just have I, no I idea how to take a stab at it. <laughs> yeah, I have demonstrated my ability to struggle with Ikiru mm. uh, right at the top of this podcast. Uh, Akira Kurosawa is one of those names that film school students drop to establish their bona fides. So in some ways, he's become kind of this like cultural marker of a film snob. 
which is unfortunate because his stuff is really good. That's why it gets talked about in film school. And that's why people who study film fall in love with Kurosawa is because it's so good. But I, I think in some ways it's become just kind of referencing Kurosawa is a bit elitist uh, to do for film lovers. And that's, I, I, when people talk about their love of Kurosawa, it really is because he is so great <laughs> and so influential on modern filmmaking. Completely agree. Uh, Ikiru has 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. In 2003, Dreamwork, DreamWorks began moving on a, a remake, an American remake of the film, and it was going to star Tom Hanks. But obviously, listeners, you're not familiar with that because it never happened. Uh, and I kind of think 2003 Tom Hanks would have been too young for uh, what we get in this film, but maybe he's entering a stage like just his, his look. He could have the kind of weighed down look now uh, that uh, I would be looking for in someone who is playing a version of Watanabe. Mm. And Leo Tolstoy's novella, The Death of Ivan Illich, was a loose inspiration for the story. That was kind of a, a launching pad. And then they did something um, different, but they it was often acknowledged in all the trivia I was looking up for this film that the death of even Illich was a, a starting point for this story. Anything you want to add before we move on towards uh, the long summary, Henry? No, just uh, that uh, Akira Kurosawa was probably the most influential filmmaker. I think there might ever have been because, uh, you know, without him, George Lucas would have never made star Wars. And if, you know, there's no star Wars, I don't know what modern cinema looks like, you know, uh, and in the 70s, the movie Bratz or the group of Coppola and Scorsese and De Palma and Spielberg, they would go to Japan and they would study under Kurosawa and he greatly influenced all of their work and, you know, just super influential. You'll see traces of him kind of anywhere you go. Yeah, he's the best. Yeah, uh, the one that I think even casual filmgoers are probably most familiar with is Seven Samurai because... Um, mm -hmm. Anytime Magnificent Seven gets mentioned, someone in the room, I think by law at this point, is obligated to mention the original Seven Samurai by Akira Kurosawa. <laughs> um, right. And uh, he he did a lot more and than that. Obviously, we're talking about one of his other films, and we still haven't talked about Seven Samurai or Hidden Fortress. is probably his next most famous. Um, or Rashomon. Yes. Yeah. Um, and these are all great, but his influence isn't just in like leaving us these artifacts of great film. It is, uh, he, he changed the language of filmmaking in a way that, um, not very many people have the chance to do anymore because there's been so many films done, <laughs> but he, he definitely right. left a mark on how film was going to be both, um, created and then also consumed. Like just the, the look of film, uh, it owes a debt to Kurosawa. Mm hmm. All right. Before we move on, to the long story that Henry will be giving us listeners. We want to thank each of you for listening. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and give updates on our fantasy box office. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. All right, Henry, you were kind enough to offer to write the summary of Ikiru, so let's have it. All right, just some cultural context and background info. This film takes place in 50s Japan, and sort of uh, after the American occupation, uh, they have all this new established government, and this film takes place in one of those city halls in, in that area, just so that you know, 
This will make sense. All right. The film opens with an image of an x-ray as the narrator states, this stomach belongs to the protagonist of our story. Signs of cancer are already present, but he doesn't know that yet. The x-ray fades into our main character, Kanji Watanabe, the section chief of public affairs in a city hall of a Japanese city. He appears weak, old, and meager as he hunches over and monotonously stamps an endless heap of documents. A group of seemingly poor women come to his section to complain about open sewage in their neighborhood that is ghastly as it brings about mosquitoes and rashes. When the complaint is brought to his attention, Watanabe dismisses them and sends them to the public works section. The narrator then continues... Here's our protagonist, but what a bore it would be to describe his life right now. Why? Because he's only killing time. He's never actually lived. You can't call this living. Then one of the younger employees suddenly bursts with laughter when reading a joke that someone sent around in the office, and she is asked to repeat what made her laugh. She says, so you have never taken a vacation? That's right. Because City Hall can't run without you? No, because everyone would realize City Hall doesn't need me at all. The narrator continues his biting remarks. This isn't even worth watching. He might as well be a corpse. In fact, he's been dead for some 20 years. Before that, he had some life in him. He even tried to do a little real work. But there's nothing left of that will or passion. It's been worn away, worn, oh, worn down by the minutia of the bureaucratic machine and the meaningless busyness it breeds. Busy, so terribly busy. But in reality, he does nothing at all except protect his position. The best way to protect your position in this world is to do nothing at all. But is this enough? Is this really enough? For him to start thinking seriously about this, his stomach will have to get a lot worse, and he will have to rack up more, even more wasted time. The women who complained about the sewage are then given the runaround as each department they go to sends them to a different one because they don't want to actually do anything. <laughs> uh, they end up all the way back at public affairs, at which point they get fed up with the system and lash out at them, calling them idlers and saying that they don't care who does it. They just want something done about that stinking cesspool. As they are storming out the door, they ask to put their proposal in writing because the section chief is out today. Then one of the employees of the public works section discusses how it is such an oddity that the section chief is absent. They say he wouldn't take a day off for just a cold, and that it's a shame because just one more month, he would have broken a record for 30 years without a single absence. They also recount how now he never seems to eat anything when he used to slurp his noodles all the way down to the bottom. We cut to Wantanabe going to get an x-ray whilst he's waiting. A fellow in the waiting room discusses with him how he also has bad stomach pain. He then gives him some crucial information, saying that if the doctor says you have an ulcer, it's actually stomach cancer and therefore a death sentence. Watanabe begins to worry as this stranger recites all the symptoms that uh, go along with his diagnosis, and it is apparent that he too suffers from all of them. Yes. The acting in this scene is incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the choice to let the camera linger for so long on his face as the symptoms around. of stomach cancer are being recited, and uh, you just see his face fall and like the horror of everything. Oh, it was so great. So good. Yeah, okay, starts hunching down in those drum beats. Yeah. After a while, he is called into the doctor's office, and much to his chagrin, the doctor says that he has a mild ulcer and that there's no need to operate. Watanabe is devastated and begs for the doctor to just give him the cold hard truth. The doctor insists that it is just a mild ulcer, and the nurses and interns present seem suitably a little uncomfortable with this lie. Once Watanabe leaves, the doctor says to an intern that he has six months at most and poses the question, what would you do if you knew you only had six months to live? The nurse chimes in and says, you see that Varanol in the cabinet? The intern is disgusted with his co-workers. Uh, we then see Watanabe's son, Mitsuo, and his spouse return home from work as they complain about their Japanese house and long for a modern home. The wife says that perhaps they can buy one with the help of Watanabe's retirement bonus. They turn the lights on and see that he has been listening the whole time. 
He is noticeably disturbed and goes to his room insisting that nothing is wrong. He then goes about his nightly routine. He looks at his dead wife's shrine and we launch into a flashback as we see her funeral and the difficulty he has dealing with her death and the grief of the young Mitsuo. We then see that his brother insists upon him getting remarried because when Mitsuo gets married, he will be pushed aside by them. We cut back to the present as Mitsuo asks him to lock up the front door and says goodnight. He uses a baseball bat to hold it uh, uses a baseball bat to hold it shut, and this causes him to flash back to the times he watched Mitsuo play baseball as a teen, and the occasional embarrassment it brought upon him when Mitsuo would get into pickles and get called an idiot by the crowd. This triggers other memories, like when he took Mitsuo to get some pretty serious leg surgery, and how he said he had other things to do instead of support him and stay for the operation. The final memory triggered is when he had to send Mitsuo off to World War II, as Mitsuo looks absolutely mortified while the train departs as he looks back at his father. Back in the present, Watanabe continues to get ready for bed when in a pretty emotionally affecting scene and with some excellent acting by Takashi Shimura, Watanabe is suddenly overcome with emotion and throws himself under the covers. He cries himself to sleep as the camera cuts to an award he received for 25 years of distinguished civil service. It now appears pointless. Later, one of the public affairs section employees drops by to check on him because he's been absent for five days. Mitsu and the housemaid seem baffled at this because he's been leaving the same usual time. While Smitsu has dinner with his uncle, who is Watanabe's brother, the uncle proposes that it may be because of a girl. We then cut to what is the epitome of the romanticized writer, as we see this man riding while down, downing brandy and chain smoking, and asking the bartender of the bar he's at to go get some pills. <laughs> it just so happens that Watanabe is there at the bar and has the exact pills the writer is looking for, and he offers them to him. They strike up a conversation and Watanabe talks to him of his stomach cancer and the writer says that it is absolutely insane of him to drink if you have stomach cancer, which is correct. And Watanabe then says he has a, he was going to kill himself with the pills he just gave the novelist, but he can't bring himself to do it. He then discusses how he is so upset with how he's been living all these years and suggests that the problem is not his stomach, rather that it is his soul. He says he was drinking to punish himself for all the lost and wasted time of his life. The novelist says he understands this predicament. Watanabe uh, tells him, I have 50,000 yen on me that I'd like you to show me how to spend all in one night. Uh, Watanabe remarks that this money represents decades of work. And then the novelist says, you know what? I'll take care of it. Tonight's on me. He delves into a monologue then, which I will quote entirely because I think it's pretty important. It's fascinating. I realize it's rude to call you fascinating, but you're an extremely rare individual. I'm just a slacker who writes second-rate fiction. You really started me thinking. They say there's something noble about suffering, and it's true. Misfortune teaches us the truth. Your cancer has opened your eyes to your own life. People are fickle and shallow. We only realize how beautiful life is when we face death. And even then, few of us realize it. The worst among us know nothing of life when they die. You are amazing, rebelling against your past self at this age. This rebellious spirit moves me. You are a slave to your own life. Now you'll become its master. It's our human duty to enjoy life. Wasting it is desecrating God's great gift. We have to be greedy for life. They say greed is a vice, but that's outdated. Greed is a virtue, especially greed for enjoying life. Come on, let's go reclaim the life you've wasted. Tonight it will be my pleasure to act as your Mephistopheles, but a beneficent one who won't ask for your soul. They proceed to hit the town, playing arcade games, drinking, smoking, attending nightclubs and dancing halls, uh, drunkenly walking through the street. Wantanami's hat is stolen, but the novelist buys him a new, one, uh, a new one, which will come up later. They find themselves at another club and drink some more. The novelist drunkenly says, "This man bears a cross, or this man bears a cross called cancer. He's Christ." Wantanami is too drunk to fully understand what is going on. 
The pianist at the bar is playing upbeat dancing songs and everyone is having a jolly time. When this song is finished, she asks for a request and Watanabe asks him to play the song Life is Brief. The pianist proceeds to play the song and couples begin to slow dance. Then, to the surprise of everyone, Watanabe begins to pathetically sing the tune, and this makes everyone there uncomfortable because they came here to escape and not face the harsh truths the lyrics preach. Everyone stands still and listens to him sing. Life is brief, fallen love maidens, before the crimson bloom fades from your lips, before the tides of passion cool within you. For those of you who know no tomorrow, life is brief, fallen love maidens, before the raven tresses begin to fade, before the flames in your hearts flicker and die. For those to whom today will never return. And whilst all this, the camera's just, you know, slowly panning in on Chimura's face. And there's a single tear that goes down. And it's absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. All right. Then they go to watch a striptease and then to another dancing hall. And after that, it seems they are both in a cab with a prostitute. Watanabe then has to throw up. And he looks at the novelist with this look that suggests, you know, Thank you, but this is not for me. This is not how I need to be spending my final days. The next day, Watanabe decides that the whole night wasn't, you know, wasn't for him, and that it wasn't a good way of spending his ticking time. Uh, and while walking down the street, he is approached by one of the employees at the public affairs section, the one who made the joke at the beginning, Toyo. She asks him to sign her resignation for her because she wants to quit City Hall. She is bored. At the house, Mitsuo and her spouse are discussing how to treat Watanabe with the recent information that has come to light and with him hearing that they wanted to take his re retirement bonus to buy their own house. Then Watanabe arrives with the young employee, and all this seems very suspicious to Mitsuo and his wife. Watanabe then reflects on the joke she made at the beginning and asks her what were those 40 years, 30 years for. Uh, the maid sees them together, but Mitsuo insists that it is unimaginable that he would be with such a young woman. However, when he sees his father and her walk out of the house together, he comes to believe that they are indeed in a relationship. However, this is not the case. Watanabe seems to be taking comfort with her joyous way of living and spends a great deal of time with her, including taking her to buy new stockings, ice skating, and going to the movies. Soon after this at a dinner, Watanabe attempts to tell Mitsuo and his wife Kazue about why he has been acting strangely. However, before he can reveal that he has cancer and will soon die, Mitsuo interrupts, saying that it is unacceptable that he should be with such a young girl and that the amount of money he has spent on her is completely ludicrous. Watanabe is infuriated by this declaration. The narrator comes back to let us know that it has been two weeks since Watanabe has left work and paper is piling up at his desk. There is great speculation and rumor as to the reason for his absence and the employees are distraught. Watanabe then visits Toyo's work and she seems to be growing tired of him, but she agrees to go out one last time. They go to a restaurant and it appears that they're having an awkward evening, and Toyo says she's had enough of this. She's confused as to why he even wants to spend time with her in the first place. He then tells her that the truth, that he is going to die soon, and that he cannot let himself die without living how she does, full of livelihood and a love of life, even if it is just for one day. He asks her how she uh, he asks her how to do this, and she says she is just a normal person. But then she puts a toy on the table. She says she makes these little toy bunnies at her new job, and when she does, she, feel like she, she feels like she's making friends with every baby in Japan. Watanabe then says he needs to make something, and that he has a Eureka moment, and says that it is not too late. He can do something. Uh, then, sort of symbolically, I kind of caught this the last time for the first in all of my viewings of this film. Uh, the Happy Birthday song plays right as he's sort of had this Eureka moment. You know, oh, good he's catch reborn. Right. Well, yeah. well done. Yeah. All right. Uh, then the next day, much to the surprise of the other employees, Watanabe is back at work and he seems like a completely new person. 
The employees in the public works section are completely bewildered by him, and he asks Ono, one of the employees, to go do some actual work and talk to the other departments at about the proposal to clean up the open sewage and build a park uh, build a park that was made at the beginning of the film by the poor women. He says he is going to go survey the site and inspect it. Then we flash forward, and the narrator says, Five months after that moment, our protagonist has died, and suddenly we are at his wake. So this is kind of unexpected. I think if you're first first time viewing this is what i I will confirm that (laughs) it caught me so off guard to like see him suddenly enliven up like like become full of life and purpose and then the next cut is his funeral i was like whoa that was so Mm. unexpected but in the right way which a lot of the choices in this film are unexpected but in the right way right and so at this point we're about 90 minutes through it and there's still 50 minutes left and now our protagonist is dead so uh, we are now at his wake, and it's all very reverent and ornate, and Watanabe's family and employees are all there. The sleazy town mayor is also present, and when asked by reporters who stop by, he says that it is crazy to think that Watanabe built that park, so apparently the park has come to fruition. Uh, it is crazy to suggest that Watanabe built that park by himself. However, the reporters insist that the local residents wholly believe that he built it basically single-handedly. They then remark how it is odd that he died on the park swing set. But the mayor insists that it does not make sense because he believes that the stomach cancer gave him a sudden death without any warning, that he just died there while he was swinging. Uh, the mayor goes back to the wake and complains about how foolish the reporters are for what they said to him because they have no idea how bureaucracy works. The mayor also says that Wantanabe did not do anything but his official duties. In the middle of his ramblings, the poor woman that brought the proposal for the park to be made in the first place come to burn incense for Wantanabe, and they cry while doing so. They hold him with the utmost reverence utmost reverence and all the men in the room seem to be uncomfortable at how highly they regard him the mayor and some of the others leave and now those who remain are the public affairs section employees Wantanami's family and a few other people from city hall one of the employees then says that he does not care what anyone thinks Wantanabe was the one who built that park they then discuss why someone would make such a sudden drastic change in character and they seem to think it was because he knew he had cancer mitsuo wanted so to talk about um just real quick uh yeah, to clarify kinda. we're talking about that moment when he's when right before we start seeing his funeral where he, when he goes into work and he suddenly like has his purpose and he's grabbing mm-hmm. stuff and he's actually going out into the field to go look at stuff which apparently no one in the bureaucracy ever does <laughs> Right, um, and it's shocking to see someone going out <laughs> and and actually look and give an eyewitness account of of what's happening um, out in the areas that they're they're um, supposed to be watching over, and they're right. saying what what would possibly have inspired this change for someone who we knew for decades as one thing to become something else. Mm-hmm. That's good. All right, and so. Uh... Mitsuo says that it's not possible that he knew he had cancer because if he did, he would have told him. The uncle then lets him know that it was possibly a young mistress that inspired this change in action. This uncle is the worst. <laughs> yes, he is. Yeah, his uncle is pretty awful. All right. We flash back to see Watanabe inspect the site and then back to the wake as they continue to disagree about what caused Watanabe's change. They recall how radical it was of him to force the proposal on all other departments and how angry it made their bosses. We are presented more flashbacks as Watanabe makes every section chief cave in to his unceasing insistence on getting this park built. They recall how everyone took pity on him and how it was such a shocker when he went to the mayor and defied him, something unprecedented at City Hall. The employee who initially stood up for Watanabe, saying that he insists it was Watanabe who built that park himself, uh, 
after the mayor leaves, then berates the others for saying that if you do not believe in Watanabe's view, then the world is indeed a dark place. Then we flashback again. So there's in this last 50 minutes, it's like 20 seconds of talking, then flashback, then like two minutes of talking, then flashback. All right. So we flashback to see uh, Watanabe collapsing as he's overseeing the construction of the park and the women there help him to get water. There's a look in his eyes full of purpose and joy. And the employee says he nurtured that park as if it was his own child. Worthy to know right now that uh, everyone is increasingly sort of as this last 15 minutes is coming to a climax, they're getting more drunk and more drunk. And so, more emotional because they're so yes. drunk. Mm-hmm. All right. Ono, who's sort of like Wantanabe's right-hand man at the public affairs section, uh, tells him something that he think may suggest that Wantanabe did in fact know he had cancer. Uh, we see Wantanabe being threatened outside the mayor's office by a big shot gangster to quit causing commotion at City Hall. He asks him if he values his life, and Wantanabe just looks at him in a way that suggests he has no idea how much he values his life. He then adds another example, and we flash back to him saying to Wantanabe, doesn't it make you furious to be treated with such contempt because they're running into all these roadblocks and people don't really want to do anything? Uh, and Watanabe replies, no, I can't afford to hate people. I haven't got that kind of time. And that's just nah, beautiful. Right. Another person chimes in at how emotional Watanabe was simply seeing a sunset and how he reverenced its beauty. Reverenced its beauty. He stops gazing at it only because he didn't have time to do so. Now everything makes sense to everyone, and they drunkenly say they would have done the same thing. But the one who initially stood up for Watanabe remarks, any of us could die at any moment. Then, very, very, very drunkenly, the person who said any one of us could have done the same, or any one of us would have done the same, is called out and called an idiot. Another says that he compared, uh, that compared to Watanabe, they are all worthless scum. And another says that's only because of how City Hall wears them down. Uh... <laughs> A funny line that I remember is just to get a garbage can emptied out, you need enough paperwork to fill another garbage can. <laughs> All right. They recall how amazing it is that Watanabe, battling stomach cancer, was able to get so much done in a system where it's impossible to do anything. They, completely, completely drunk, say they will now act as he did. Someone brings in his hat, which was found at the park after he had died, or the hat that the novelist bought him. And uh, Mitsu holds it in a very sad way, sort of just this image of him holding this kind of emblem of his father. Uh, a police officer then comes in to pay respects and tell him how moved he was at seeing Watanabe pour his soul out of, into a song uh, that he sung right before he died. And then we flash back to what I think is one of the most beautiful things ever put on film. Uh, and we've shown Watanabe sing in the pouring snow and with all the life he has led to him, the song he sang, uh, Life is Brief. And so while he swings on the swing set of his now completed park, he seems completely and utterly content with where he is perfectly happy. And his voice penetrates the depths of everyone who hears it. And uh, the same lyrics, life is brief, fall in love. Cutting back to the wake, we see Mitsuo a little bit emotionally overwhelmed by all this new information revealed to Kazue, his wife, that his father left his entire retirement bonus and the remaining of his savings to him before he went to the park. The employees insist his actions, his actions won't be in vain and swear to follow in his footsteps. Uh, we see Ono, Watanabe's right-hand man, became the new, has become the new section chief. And although they have sworn to act as Watanabe has, another proposal is brought up to them and it is dismissed. And then the one who stood up for Watanabe at the wake stands up and then slowly sits back down as he kind of becomes unsure of himself. Uh, it's a really ambiguous sort of ending and then uh now we cut this to the park 
and there are many kids happily frolicking. And the film fades to, fades to black on an image of them happily playing in this new completed park. The end. Great summary, Henry. Uh, not the easiest film to summarize. Anything yeah, with, with did my best to do it just always <laughs> troublesome, but you did a really uh, good job on that, and I think it captured a lot of what I loved on my my first and only viewing of the film. I love that ambiguous ending uh, that you you dwelt on a little bit at the end. So all these men have kind of made these pledges to change their lives, and then the uh, when we go back to the bureaucracy of City Hall, it is. I mean, I, I didn't go and compare, but it feels like almost a shot for shot remake of the opening of the film. When someone mm-hmm. comes in with an, a problem, the problem gets mentioned to the head of the department and the head of the department tells them which other department it needs to be taken to. Um, and one of the men who was there at the funeral, he, like he, he stands up very dramatically. Like he's outraged that we're just falling back into the same rut of bureaucracy when we were all inspired by Watanabe and what he accomplished in the last days of his life and giving this park. And then he gets stared down and he gives up like without even saying a word, he gives up. <laughs> like he, he, he deflates like literally, and he sinks back down into it. He picks up his chair and sinks back down into it. And the way the camera work um, happens is he's, as he sinks down, he gets completely blocked from the camera's view by piles of paper. Like the bureaucracy is this wall um, around him. And it was so sad, but also felt so real. Mm. (laughs) Um, uh, Like like who hasn't made a a new year's resolution that fades within a few weeks. Um, But at the time you can have all the emotion behind it and, and really feel committed. uh, And then just uh, routine becomes routine again. Uh, you, we, we slip back into the old habits and uh, but the film doesn't end on that. Like it, it would be super depressing to end on that right. note <laughs> uh, by, mm-hmm. by making the choice to show the playground one more time. It's still a call to action for the audience. I think of you can still make the difference. Like even if uh, you know, and everyone who watches this is probably going to want to go live a better life. Some of them are going to mm-hmm. fail, but look at the results of making that choice to live a better life, this, this playground. And so maybe this film reaches you personally as the viewer and you are going to change, even if not everyone who maybe feels that call is going to be able to answer that call. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. And this is sort of like the visual metaphor of him sinking down underneath the stack of paper. I think, you know, that's what separates Kurosawa from, you know, just your typical guys that, it's just there's nothing said, but you completely understand what the idea he's trying to get at simply through visual means. Uh, it just yes, and, and, and visual means making. that are going to cross culture and cross, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, specificity of cultural context. Right. Um, like uh, th- this film isn't dubbed in English. It's it's um, you, you get the uh, the translation titles uh, at the bottom. You got to read it, but so much of the meaning is comes through perfectly clearly mm-hmm. through. Uh, the cinematography, and again through the acting, like the actor is amazing in this. He he does so yeah, much. I think it's one of the better the, performances ever. Yeah, with uh, again Shimura is his name. He does such mm. a great job in conveying weight and guilt and uh, despair, and then also hope. Uh, like he feels transformed in those. Uh, it's only a few scenes that we get of him. Um, mm-hmm. reinvigorated by life uh, but it feels like a different person on screen but his face is so distinctive and, and it, right. it, oh it's it's just a wonderful performance All right. and by the way if you've seen Seven Samurai but not seen Akiru Shimura is 
uh, Kanbei Shimada, the leader of the Seven Samurai. So you may, that might pique your interest to maybe check this out. But uh, yeah, <laughs> um, the acting is just insanely good. Were there any, are there any moments, uh, you, you've seen this more than I have, uh, the moments that stood out the most for me were the funeral moment where it like cut and you know that the film's not over and it just cuts to a funeral. You're like, oh, oh what, what do we have here? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was instantly intrigued with what was going to come next and I liked how it all played out and um, it was important to know that these men were getting more and more drunk because without <laughs> being more and more drunk, some of their actions are get start to feel a bit absurd uh, in, in the way that they're, they're just so um, boisterously emotive, <laughs> I guess right. is how I'd say it. Um, and then that last shot, uh, like you want... Uh, I mean, this, this film, this, this transformation of him, it feels like a Christmas carol or it feels like, um, Groundhog Day, uh, where like, okay, this, this person who was one way is now completely different. And, but it, but it kind of pulls the rug out from under you for, for that because he dies, but then you still kind of like, oh, but he's going to inspire everyone to be better. And the film says, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, he, he didn't really. Uh, and it was so unexpected, but it, it felt like what needed to be said at that moment mm-hmm. to remind the viewers that there are probably inspiring people and inspiring things all around us every day. And we maybe get inspired briefly. And then we, we, the, the, you know, the fire dies within us and we, we fall back into, into our old ways. Um, but then to still finish with that shot of the playground, is just, it's such brilliant filmmaking. Right. So, and this whole, but I was gonna say, are there are there other moments to stand up for you the way those two oh. did for me? Again, I've only watched it once. What what are some of your other favorite moments in the film? I remember on my first viewing of it, uh, the moment that I was like, okay, this is really this is getting at something, or this is like affecting me, uh, is when he's the first time he sings the song "Life Is Brief." I just remember, like, mm-hmm. wow, that you know. Like I mentioned, he has just that one streaming tear down his face and he's just completely still and with like this other sadness. Uh, I I love his interaction with the novelist, the first one, where, he, you know, the novelist has his great monologue. And then also, I the novelist section, I think, is a really strong section or the whole thing is brilliant. But I remember just the look he, after he's thrown up and he's kind of like a wreck. Uh, he just looks at him. It's like a 20 second shot of him just like looking at him. But that look just says so much. Uh, it, I don't, that that novelist character is really interesting. He is the, interesting. Um, very interesting. Like visually, he's interesting. Like he almost, I mean, he's he looks a little bit like um, the pulp hero of the shadow. Like he's got yes, his big his cape. dark coat and, and a scarf that goes up pretty high on his face. And he's got a, a hat that gets pulled down low a lot. Mm. Um and the uh like he says i'll be your mephistopheles but i'm not gonna steal your soul but then he does kind of lead him into mm. an evening of debauchery right <laughs> that, yeah uh that that he hasn't known before um and uh i i like that as we're seeing watanabe kind of like uh realize he's got a finite amount of time and he's, he wants to live a new life we mm. see a few different um moves that he makes to try and live life. And I think this is, uh, we, we see similar things in some of the other, um, you know, stories about life changes. Uh, so like I mentioned groundhog day, we see a similar thing in groundhog day where he gets weirded out by 
the cycle that he gets stuck into. So Bill mm-hmm. Murray is stuck in this loop of the day. And eventually though, he, he does the move very similar of like, well, I'm going to go live a debaucherous life without any consequences. Cause who cares? Mm-hmm. Um, but he finds that unfulfilling and Watanabe like kind of, I'm going to die. And so who cares what I do? Who cares if I drink, who cares if I party? And he does that, but then it's almost immediately he's like, well, that, that yeah. did not do anything <laughs> for me. <laughs> um, and then his next move is to try and it's, I, like the uncle and the son kind of think this is uh, a romantic connection that he's forming right. with uh, his former employee, but it, it feels a little more father daughter to me than anything romantic. Right. Um, and I think a it, little it, bit, it, it's but a, even a father daughter, but sort of almost skewed in a way. I, for some reason it kind of brought to mind Jimmy Stewart in vertigo, kind of just the way he was like obsessed with this woman. But I think this one has a little bit, obviously a lot less creepiness, but just that, like <laughs> yeah. complete obsession i think mm-hmm. but it's only because he like there's this spark of life in her and he says yeah and he's i have he's to be like that connect. one day mm-hmm. um but then even that um isn't going to be enough and it, it almost like the move towards the playground um okay this this feels a little odd to say but we we just did, we're doing a double recording and we just recorded an episode on nightmare before Christmas, uh, right before this recording of this episode. And these are going to drop weeks apart, even I I think probably a month apart. Um, but I think there's some similar themes that get played with, um, about (laughs) finding your calling and embracing that. Um, and he was living in his calling, but it had worn him down and it had become mundane and, uh, unfulfilling for him. Mm. But then he kind of, reminded both jack skellington and uh, again i did not see this going here when we started recording this uh but both uh watanabe and jack skellington kind of need to be reinvigorated to find that their real purpose was their old purpose that they had kind of forgotten about and the crucial difference is obviously that uh skellington's change is self-inflicted while watanabe's change is cancer inflicted I feel yes. like his whole transformation is solely because he has cancer. And I think if he didn't have cancer, he would just spend the rest of his, all of his days just stamping papers and doing nothing. Right. Uh, yes. I wanted to ask that very question. Like what, you know, is the cancer like the, the ghost visiting Scrooge? Like without that moment, is he already damned and just doesn't know it? I think yes. Cause there's nothing. It seems in the, we get, Okay, so we get very few scenes of a uh, post being invigorated Watanabe, and I think very few of pre knowing he has cancer Watanabe. But I think from the scenes that we do have, uh, he's just he's a robot. He just does stamp and then stamp and stamp, and he doesn't. I don't. There's any signs that he would do anything other than that uh, if there wasn't cancer involved. Yeah, I, I think you're right. He would have just gone about this routine until retirement. And then I don't know what his retirement would have looked like. <laughs> he does not seem to have any hobbies. He has a very poor uh, relationship with his son. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, one of the other moments that stood out to me, just in terms of filmmaking, was when it's the the funeral procession for his wife. Uh-huh. And he and his son are in a car behind the hearse. I mean, it's not like an American hearse, but behind what's clearly the vehicle carrying uh, his wife's body and the son um, looks out at the window and he's got to be what? Six or seven. Yeah. Six. How old do you say? He says, we have to catch up to mom. She's getting away. 
And it's just mm. such a heartbreaking. Oh, it's, a, it's a heartbreaking line. Yeah. Yeah. Heartbreaking line of dialogue and the performance again from everyone. Uh, a plus performances all around. This film uh, is hitting all the marks uh, that it needs to hit to, to pluck at um, the heartstrings. And again, to kind of give a call to action to the audience. Um, and it's, uh, you know, going back to, to Watanabe, uh, he, his call to action is, is this cancer. And I, like you said, I don't see what his, his, how his life would have had any variation without this recognition that his time is finite and it feels like he is, he's wasting his time. And it's only when that time becomes finite that he realizes he's wasting it, which is, I think, uh, another thing that feels universal and human, but also, um, is, uh, something maybe we don't recognize, um, as right. much as we should. I, the, the novelist even directly says in his, a uh, big monologue, he says the worst of us realize nothing of something. The worst of us realize nothing of life, uh, before it's taken away, something along those lines. But, uh, we only realize how beautiful life is when we face death is what he says. And yeah. Yeah. And the, true. um, at, at the wake when they say like, well, if we knew what he knew, we'd all live that way. And someone says, any of us could die tomorrow. Basically right. mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like we don't know how much time we have. So how many of us are living wasted lives of this, you know, inane bureaucracy where we don't actually do it. Like the, the purpose seems to be to do as little as possible. Um, mm-hmm. And, and he received knowledge of how finite his life is but the reality is we're all finite <laughs> like we, right he, they, they come to that drunken realization which is when they all promise that they're going to change mm-hmm. uh but the abstract sense of finiteness uh is not the same as the very real you have x number of months to live sense mm-hmm. of uh of, you know how you know how limited life really is mm-hmm. another just this uh reminded me moments of filmmaking that stand out to me in this is a when the women get the runaround, that whole, it's like two minutes of just like whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And it's like sanitation, then pest control, then road, like all the, I don't know, it, it moves with energy. And this doesn't sound like, you know, this doesn't sound action packed, but it's wholly riveting, I think, because there's, in terms of filmmaking, there's so much visual interest in just the way people are framed. Or this is something trademark Kurosawa that he blocks in an exaggerated way that kind of, They'll be able to fit, you know, upwards of five, six, seven faces in one shot. And all of them can like, you can see their expression and what they're thinking. A lot of times we'll have some kind of weather in the background and all these stacks of papers that there's always something to draw your eye. And on top of that, it's just like a completely holy rivulet or riveting story. And I think uh, I read something that it wasn't released in America until 1960 because the Toho thought it was too Japanese. But I don't think that's correct because this is just such a universal story of you know it's you know what is purpose who am i what am i supposed to do and i anyone on earth can relate to that and so yeah it just the best just brilliant i love it um roger ebert um in 1996 he said over the years i've seen ikuru every five years or so and each time it has moved me and made me think and the older i get the less watanabe seems like a pathetic old man and the more he seems like every one of us Mm. so yeah uh i I definitely agree with uh what you were saying like there's even though the specificity of post-war japan is on display in how his life plays out i think there's still a universality to the themes that are at work uh within this film Mm -hmm, most definitely 
Um, you were mentioning uh, Kurosawa's like filmmaking. I, I mentioned early on, I think that there's like a deliberateness to this. Um, the pace is, is fairly slow um, for a lot of these shots, but there's still so much that is interesting about these shots. And I, I loved um, when you're in the bureaucracy, how like the weight of all the paperwork is always right. omnipresent um, everywhere. But then also when we did, uh, when it goes to the wake, like there's very interesting framing and layering that happens of like boundaries. Um, like you initially you're looking through a window and you don't know you're looking through a window till the camera pans back. And then later on, like frames within you frames. think it's doing the same thing where it's looking through a window, but really it's looking through a window that's behind a door and the door gets closed. <laughs> like there's just a lot uh-huh. of layers and depth of field work that um, makes sequences that could with a more static shot become very dull very quickly always retain the viewer interest um and and the action that's happening isn't necessarily uh what the focus of the camera is on it's things about how the shot is being framed still provide uh you know interest for the eye to follow and um to remain um really focused on the screen and that you're the shot never feels lazy and invites the audience to kind of check out because there's always something that's going to be happening. Mm -hmm. It's definitely not, you know, your standard shot, reverse shot, shot, reverse shot, all the dialogue. I don't think there's a single shot reverse shot into. Uh Yeah. I was just gonna say that that's something that we can slip into very comfortably as an audience. And so I think it can be very inviting for a director and in doing other things in this film, it doesn't feel showy. It's not doing it for the sake of, um, you know, uh, demonstrating like an autorship in how uh, Kurosawa is going to choose to tell this film. It feels like it's what's necessary to tell this um, somewhat simple, uh, like uh, we, we mentioned stakes, I think in our, in our last uh, uh, recently we were talking about stakes, like, you know, small stakes can be, can feel pretty significant in a world where uh, we, we're seeing stories all the time about, uh, you know, uh, you know, the end of the universe, like, like that's the current summer blockbusters uh-huh. are all, you know, end of the universe stakes. This is the stakes of, can a neighborhood get a park built? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, that's, and if I care stakes. so much more about that than I do about the end of life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and can, can he find his own personal purpose in, knowing that he's going to die. This isn't like life or death. It is a story of death. And what is he going to do before death? Mm -hmm. Uh, And like, we become very invested in seeing that play out. And it's, um, it's so pleasing when we get to uh, the wake to, you know, to do that jump in the narrative, we jump ahead five months and we see both of these things came about the playground got built and he found his purpose and everyone around him saw that, right. The, you know, that, that it wasn't just, he got the playground built, but people recognized that he was the one who got the playground built. Mm-hmm. Um, that, he, you know, his, his drive um, caused, uh, you know, so many of the attachments that he had not allowed himself to form o- over the decades. Um, like, like when we see his wake, there's his um, business associates who clearly don't have a real personal attachment uh, to him. Uh, there's his son who throughout the film we've seen, there's a distance there. Um, Mm -hmm. and there's no one else. Like he has no, no other attachments, but then, then these, uh, you know, the, the people from the neighborhood where the park got built come and light incense. And the policeman who saw him on his last night of life comes personally to light incense for him. Uh, because 
in these last five months from when he finds out he has stomach cancer, he is going to form more connections than he made in his previous decades of life. Mm-hmm. How think, old is he? Does it say ever explicitly in the film what, what age he is? Uh, I don't think it says what age he is, just that he's been working. Nearing retirement. 30 years of work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, Kurosawa, I see this, you know, I've seen all this, basically all his films, not the super early ones, but uh, a consistent theme in his work is that a purpose is only derived from your actions with other people. And I think this film perfectly shows that because when he's by himself, uh, just stamping the papers away, he has no influence at all on the world around him. But yet through his, you know, his interactions with others and trying to get things going, his purpose, even though his all he does is build a park, that's really, that means so much more. Um, just, you know, that that act can, it might not have inspired true genuine change in the drunken coworkers or employees, but it greatly improved those lives with the children. Just the fact, you know, we see them playing at the very end in that kind of coda. And they're, it it's amazing. They're just so happy and swinging around and, you know, he built that park and that meant something, um, which I, you know, that's something like just that idea is kind of moving and it, you know, it affects me. Uh, I'm just, this work is, you know, it's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, like the, the affecting part is that, um, you know, he, he worked for the city, which is a fine responsible job, but he had, he had not made any impact because they were always passing the buck because of the nature of the bureaucracy he was in. Um, he, he had not impacted anyone's lives really. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, he realizes that in terms of like the jokes that get told about him mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning, like the, there's a lot of character revelation in the, in that joke right. uh, being told. Uh, but the, the end says, you know, even someone who lived their life that way for so long was able to leave an impact and make those connections, um, which seemed antithetical to the character we see in the opening shots of the film. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And that's something about, uh, it's just stuck in my mind. Um, there's another thing of Kurosawa that if you watch his films, you'll notice this completely throughout. And especially if you've seen seven samurais, uh, his posture is super distinct and it's always noticeable that he's like hunched over. Uh, makes me think, you know, Kikuchio in yeah. Seven Samurai. Yeah. Just the way. Yeah, you, you mean uh, Shimura, the, the main actor? Shimura, yeah. I was talking about Kikuchio in Seven Samurai. Also has this very distinct mm-hmm. posture. But yeah, the way it communicates, this is just another testament to Shimura's brilliant performance is that he communicates so much just by simply like being hunched over and having his face look down. Um, and the way that there are some shots of when he's, you know, he's really fighting this cancer and he's trying to go around city hall and get stuff done and go to these different places and walk around. And he's like having to like use the wall to help him along. And it's, it's just great, great acting. And, uh, I want to talk about the mayor a little bit. I, I, he stands out to me, the sleazy mayor. Yeah. You, you hate him. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Like he does not have a lot of screen time, but uh, 
in this story you would expect uh like the i mean a lot of the story when you think about it is man versus self it's both mm-hmm. uh you know his own body fighting against him but also his own uh you know uh well lack of momentum in life <laughs> you know mm-hmm. the, he, he's allowed himself to they call him the mummy right he's allowed right. himself to become mummified while living uh and so that's one of the major themes but if there is a villain of this piece it is the mayor <laughs> i'd agree who is so, like you said, he's slimy. He is the the worst kind of slick politician that, you know, the stereotypical slick politician who um, doesn't want to uh, get their hands dirty in anything of significance, but wants the credit for everything that is actually accomplished uh-huh. um, kind of character. And uh, you, you just, you, you don't like him uh-huh. <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. I just think about when he, uh, there's a great flashback where he goes and, defies the mayor and it's like this huge deal and he's like telling him about he's like will you please consider uh this proposal for the new park and he's like speaking super meagerly because you know he's dying and he's hunched over and the mayor's like oh blah 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 no and then uh he just goes immediately to talking with these guys about something completely irrelevant to the city government or anything at all and then so about, frivolous yeah so completely pointless and then Watanabe goes back to over to him. He's like, won't you reconsider? And then it's this big deal. And then, uh, you know, obviously has that gangster threaten him. But yeah, the mayor's kind of funny in a way. I think in the, it goes to the wake and he's, Watanabe did nothing outside of his uh, normal civil duties and all that. And it's really. Which everyone knows is a lie. Right. Everyone in that room. Right. Because their normal civil duties is passing the buck. That is the only thing we see uh-huh. anyone do. Um, is, is just give every citizen that comes for help the runaround and send them from department to department. Yeah. And even in the, the wake, it's sort of odd, This the reputation the mayor has or the, like people are scared to say anything about him because they're talking about uh, anyone who doesn't believe in Watanabe's zeal is a lying in a place and a blah, 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 blah. And then one of them is like, just say the mayor, like, just say it, uh, you know, just say that the mayor is blah, 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 and all this and all that. And they're like, yeah, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think, um, so if we're talking about themes of this, uh, like mm. there's the, the fact that he hadn't done anything with his life until this moment. And then um, he chooses to engage uh, after trying debauchery after trying a one-to-one personal connection with the, with this girl. And um, he, he realizes um, that he still has this other chance to engage and make a difference. Um, but one thing that I think is interesting is that there's this massive problem and the problem will not be solved as the bureaucracy currently exists because again, everyone just z- sends the problem off to someone else. And what gets the problem resolved is him taking ownership of the problem, mm-hmm. which he has no fault in this. He did not cause, uh, you know, the, well, okay. So there's, they want a playground built, but they also want it built so that they close off this open sewage. That is yeah. making the children the area and is a health. Concern. He did not cause the sewer break or whatever it was that resulted in the open sewage. Um, and with the way the government seems to be structured, he really has no personal responsibility for building a park, right? Mm-hmm. Like it really isn't. His. Yeah. He's the section um, chief of as, public affairs, not, you know, yeah. there's a parks department and all that kind of stuff, but yeah, he has no business. But for anything to happen, someone has to take section. ownership and it happens mm-hmm. to be uh, Watanabe 
is the mm-hmm. one who who steps up uh, mm-hmm. and takes ownership. And I think there's something, uh, you know, just talking about themes in human nature. I think there is for for all of us. Like there, there's the option to allow things to be and to just say, well, it's it's not my problem. Uh, and if everyone does that, nothing ever changes. Mm-hmm. And his willingness to be the one to say, no, this is now my problem. Um, well, and, and also like the uh, the very tenacious uh, townswomen who who came and and like did the run around mm-hmm. multiple times and kept kept going around. Uh, they're ensuring that someone knows that this problem exists, and he's the mm-hmm. one who says, "Okay, now this is my problem." That's how change occurs. So you need the, like the alarm raised, and so someone to say, "This is you know the buck stops here. This is my responsibility." And that there's this massive critique of government bureaucracy in this film and this praise of an individual who steps outside the norms of bureaucratic, uh, officiating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like the, the, when they're so sloshed and drunk, they're saying, uh, battling stomach cancer that, uh, he was able to get so, so much done in a system where it's impossible to do anything. Yeah. And I think it's definitely, Maybe a critique of America, because obviously this new government was, uh, you know, in, established during the American occupation after World War II. Um, yeah, it, totally. The individual purpose, you know, it comes from doing things and not being an idler, uh, which is you know, the women accuse them of being idlers as they're infuriated about the, the cesspool. All right. Well, any final thoughts on Ikiru? Uh, it's my opinion, one of the very best things that films ever made. Watch it. It's Ebert says in his uh, review, it's one of the few movies that may actually change the way you go about living your life. So, well, I think that's the call to action at the end. Mm-hmm. And again, I just love the poetic uh, nature of showing it fail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the man stand up, throw his chair down. We have to do something different and then just wither mm-hmm. and say, never mind. I'm just going to be the cog in this machine. But then that shot of the the, um, the playground reminds the viewer that if you choose not to be that cog, you can make a difference. Um, right. And so, like you said, it, it's a film that invites you to have that kind of introspective uh, relationship with the narrative. And it is absolutely one that's going to stick with me. Um, Todd and I, and, and uh, now with several other guests, we've done over 200 of these episodes of this podcast. And when we ran through the show notes, when, when Todd was uh, leaving, there were a few where it's like, Oh, okay. I remember that. But like, I really needed a trigger to like, remember <laughs> some of the, the stories uh-huh. that we've talked about just because we've done so many. I don't think that will ever happen with this one. I think, this is a film I'm going to want to go revisit and uh, it's going to be sticking with me and listeners. It's well known enough. Uh, I would assume many local libraries would have access to it. Um, it's not streaming on any of the traditional streaming platforms right now, right. Uh, but if you can get your hands on it, if you know a film buff or if your if your local library has it, I highly recommend Ikiru. That's I K I R U uh, by uh, Akira Kurosawa. Um, it's, it's a pretty amazing piece of art, um, in -hmm. terms of both the technical skill on display in terms of filmmaking, but also the thematic heft of the story that's going to be told by a master who has all the tools in the toolbox for telling, uh, stories in this way. 100%. 
All right, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 52, when we talked about A Christmas Carol. This isn't a Christmas story, but... I, I think there's a lot of overlap <laughs> in the story of Scrooge and the story of Watanabe or uh, episode number 53. It's a wonderful life. Another Christmas, like, like in America, we tend to t- uh, tell a lot of these stories around Christmas time. I think of, you know, the inspiring change uh, that one individual can make. Uh, so those are some that we thought had a, a, some thematic overlap. Uh, you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or else on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at Dizminute, and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Thank you, Henry. Yeah, that was great. I very much appreciate it.